The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 105, 1-3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your wondrous works. You spoke light into existence. You placed the stars in the heavens and gave each one a name. You created sun and moon, land and sea, and filled it all with life, plants, animals, little fish, and leviathan. All of this testifies to your power and wisdom, and yet none of this compares to what you did in history 2,000 years ago in sending your son to take on the likeness of human flesh, to live perfectly, to suffer at our wicked hands, to die in our place, and to walk out of that tomb victorious so that all the world would know Jesus Christ reigns. We glory in this gospel and worship you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When God created man, he gave him a job. It says in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, that is, to work it and to guard it, to till the soil and protect it from enemies. The Garden of Eden was situated on a mountain. We know this because out of it flowed a river that became four rivers, Genesis 2.10, and of course rivers flow downhill. So out of Eden were these four rivers of life. When the serpent tempted Eve and Adam followed her into sin, mankind failed in his task to keep and guard the garden. He had one job to do, and thus the whole world fell. Every river became polluted by sin. This means that every back pain, every creak in your joints, every sorrow, sickness, and resultant death flows from this original failure to keep and guard the garden. Let one snake in and everything falls apart. In Proverbs 4.23, the proverb we are considering this morning, Solomon calls this first failure to memory when he says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. I'm going to read that again. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. This Hebrew word for keep or guard is the same word that is used back in Genesis for our job. And it's the same verb for what the cherubim do after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. Genesis 3.24 says, So God drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is Solomon doing in this proverb? He is instructing us to guard our hearts like a cherubim guarding the way back into Eden. And you're not getting past a cherubim, right? With all vigilance, with a flaming sword in our hands. And this is because, like the Garden of Eden, 
all of the issues of life flow from our heart. Jesus says that out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. You are the biggest problem you have right now. But he also says in John 7.38, and this is good news, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Eden image again. So which heart do you have? And who is downstream from your heart? Is your river polluted by sin or is it pure, clean, mountain spring water that gives life to all who drink it? What is flowing out of your heart? From Psalm 106, 6 to 8. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. Father, we confess that our hearts are evil. Though you have given us your Holy Spirit and cleaned us up, we continue to defile ourselves day by day. We lust, we covet, we lie, we steal, we blaspheme your name and have turned inward to worship ourselves. Forgive us for failing to guard our hearts and letting so much sin hang out there. Help us to kill it with the flaming sword of your word and your power. We confess those individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. From Isaiah 4-2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Saints of Christ Church, because you have confessed your sins, you are numbered amongst those who have escaped. And it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Our scripture passage this morning is Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us to worship you this morning. I ask that my words concerning you would be true, that you would open our ears, our minds, our hearts, 
to receive all that you may have for us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So this Lord's Day, I want to look at these first seven verses in Revelation 2, a letter from the risen and reigning Jesus Christ to his church in Ephesus. In this letter, we will read of the things which Jesus, one, commends the church in Ephesus for, the good works that they are doing, and two, what he condemns, his rebuke regarding the love they lack. Revelation was a circular letter, meaning that it would have been copied and passed around the churches in Asia Minor and beyond. That's how we have it in our Bibles today. And within this one large letter, we find these seven smaller letters to historical congregations in what is now modern-day Turkey. While each letter applies specifically to the church it is written to, all of the churches are invited to listen in and heed Jesus' teaching at the end of each letter when he writes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus is still saying this word today to us. He is still encouraging his people to search the scriptures, to heed his commands, and to hear what the Spirit has to say. Now briefly, I'd like to set the context for chapter 2 by looking at chapter 1. There, the Apostle John describes his experience while on the island of Patmos. He says in verse 9 that he was there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now John is not saying that he voluntarily went there. He didn't go there he said one day, I'm going to be a missionary and go to Patmos. Or he didn't think one day that the real estate was really cheap there. Instead, he was exiled there by the authorities for his witness, for proclaiming the gospel and leading the church. And perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps he was there with other Christians too. John says on that Lord's day, he was in the spirit, when from behind him he heard a loud voice like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. John works up the courage to turn around to see this voice. And first, he sees seven golden lampstands. And then, in the midst of them, he sees Jesus. He sees the man he had spent three years of his life with, the man that he saw crucified, the man uh, that asked him to take care of his mother, the man that was resurrected and then ascended, and remember, this was many years ago, and here he is, glorified, speaking to his friend. Verse 13 begins, one like the son of man, clothed with garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And what does John do? What can he do? He falls down at Jesus' feet, it says, as if dead. Who can bear this? Who can see the glorified God-man and live? And Jesus reaches out to him with his right hand, the one that grips the stars, 
And he lays it on John and says, do not be afraid. Often, you'll hear it said that we don't have any descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament. We don't know what he looked like. But that is not entirely correct. While we don't have a description of him during his earthly ministry, we most certainly have a glimpse here of his glorified existence. And this description, this magnificent description of Jesus, follows the kind of description we find of the bridegroom in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, where the bride is writing about him, and she says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, chief among 10,000. And then she continues to describe each feature of the groom with metaphor. So here is Jesus, the bridegroom, writing love letters to his bride, his beloved people, through the pen of the Apostle John. Now, you may protest. What kind of love letter includes rebuke? Can I get away with writing a note to my beautiful wife on our anniversary next month that says, you're so beautiful, you're so amazing, you're wonderful, you're radiant and ruddy, but this I have against you. <laughs> I can't, I asked her, she says no. And I don't recommend any of you do that. But Jesus can. For he says in his letter to Laodicea, later in Revelation, as many as I love, I rebuke. So let us consider this letter to Ephesus and to us together. Chapter 2 of Revelation begins, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now there has been debate as to whether or not these angels are, well, angels as in celestial beings. And this isn't because of skepticism or trying to play loose with the text, but because the Greek word, angelos, can simply mean either angel or messenger. It just depends on the context. And for example, angelos is used to refer to John the Baptist in the beginning of Mark, and we translate it as messenger there. And Jesus' disciples are called angelos in Luke 9, again, messengers. Given the context here, I believe the most straightforward reading would be that these angels are the bishops or elders, pastors, the representatives of these local churches. And I have a few practical reasons. For one, why would Jesus have a human record a message for other humans, but then have John send it off to an angel? Two, how does John know where these angels receive their mail? I'm just, I'm being practical. How come Jesus doesn't just speak to the angels himself as he does elsewhere in Revelation? And uh, in what way do we know that churches have angels? Beyond these considerations, looking closer at the text, we might find a clue back in chapter 1 when Jesus touched John. Remember, he touched him with his right hand, the star hand. And we are told in Revelation 1.20 that the stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. So this perhaps could signify that Jesus is commissioning John to become a messenger as well, one that will send his letters to the other messengers. <clears throat> now don't get me wrong, my point is not to downplay angels. We absolutely believe they do the bidding of God and serve his people today. But in this instance, it seems more likely that we are talking about men as messengers or pastors and not heavenly angels. So Jesus continues, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So the seven stars, as we know, are the seven angels or messengers, and they are gripped by Jesus in his hand. 
We are also told back in Revelation 1.20 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches of Asia. And the phrase here, these things, says he, appears around 250 times in the Old Testament, and we often translate it as, thus saith the Lord. So here we have Jesus speaking with authority, Jesus speaking as Yahweh does in the Old Testament to his people. Continuing on, we see Jesus walking among the lampstands. He is in their midst, uh, and this reminds us of Yahweh walking in the midst of the garden. And when did God do this in the garden? He did this when he came to check on Adam and Eve and found them to be hiding, naked, and ashamed. Likewise, Jesus does the same with his churches throughout the world. He is attentive to his people. He's tending the lampstands. He's trimming their wicks. He's refueling the lamps. He's maintaining their light to the world. He is present with his church like Yahweh was present with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's present with us here at CCD. He intimately knows us, he knows our works, and he knows our hearts. So as we walk through the message, I want to see what Jesus has to say to us. Jesus first tells the church in Ephesus what they are doing right. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience. Clearly, the Ephesian church is not a lazy church, but they were working hard and they were in it for the long haul. Jesus then identifies specific aspects of this work. He says, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, you have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. The idea of not bearing those who are evil relates to not tolerating those who do wicked things. This could be both within and outside the church. When grievous sin and evil is found within the church, what are God's people called to do? We are to confront our brother or sister in love. We are to plead with them to repent. And we are to ask them to turn back to God, who's both willing and able to forgive. And if they refuse, if a dear brother has a sinful heart set on a woman other than his wife and won't listen to his friends, if a dear sister renounces the faith and refuses to receive counsel from her pastor or godly woman, the church of Christ is called to discipline, and if needed, excommunicate those who willfully do not walk according to the faith. So Jesus here is commending intolerance. He's commending the intolerance of evil. Jesus says, they have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. When Paul was passing by Ephesus for the final time on his way to Rome in Acts 20, he called the elders to himself to give one final exhortation. And he said to them, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And here we see these savage wolves have now come. And the church in Ephesus has stood firm in opposing them and exposing them as liars. The early church father Irenaeus wrote to the Ephesians and observed, You all live according to the truth. No heresy has come among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if he speaks of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. They do not so much as listen to anyone 
if they do not speak the truth of Christ. They have no entertainment of falsehood, no interest, no tolerance. False apostles and teachers can move along. You have no business here in Ephesus. Likewise, we must do this today. Wicked men and women who speak falsehood about Christ must be resisted by God's faithful. And Jesus says that the church in Ephesus has done well in this regard. And a, a specific example he provides is of a false teaching operating in Ephesus uh, in verse 6, where Jesus celebrates that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he says he also hates those deeds. Now, we're not entirely sure who these Nicolaitans were. But from the letter to Pergamos later uh, on in Revelation, Jesus says that they held to a false doctrine. And perhaps the false teaching was the same or similar to the doctrine of Balaam mentioned there as well. And this doctrine, it says, was that of eating food sacrificed to idols, encouraging sexual immorality among God's people. An additional reason to tie these two together, the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, is that in, uh, Balaam in Hebrew and Nicolaitan in Greek mean roughly the same thing. People conquerors or victory people. They have the same name. So what does Jesus commend here? He commends their hard work. He commends their patience as they endure the onslaught of false teachers. He commends them for not tolerating those who are evil and for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Put positively, Jesus commends their robust commitment to both moral purity and doctrinal purity. So from the outside looking in, the church in Ephesus seems to be in good shape. I'm sure if you were to visit the church one, morning, one Sunday morning, you'd leave edified. You'd have a good time. You'd learn something. They have their doctrinal ducks in a row, and their scandals consist of removing evildoers rather than tolerating them. And given the history of the church, we would expect this much. What do we know about the Ephesian church? Consider this. In Acts 18, Paul arrives there during his second missionary journey with his friends Priscilla and Aquila, and that's when they first introduced the gospel to the city. Paul then moves on to Jerusalem, and he leaves the Priscilla and Aquila behind, who are then soon joined by the powerful preacher, Apollos. And on his third journey, Paul stopped and ministered there for about three years, the longest he had ever spent in one place. Eventually, he had his son in the faith, Timothy, placed there as pastor. We have other co-laborers of Paul mentioned with this city. And lastly, according to church tradition, the Apostle John himself spent his last decades there. And given that he took care of Mary, um, some even believe she was buried there. So what a legacy this church has. And don't forget the epistle to the Ephesians written by Paul. Ephesus was a good church, blessed with good shepherds. And in fact, in many ways, it reminds me of Moscow, of our Christian community here. We have all heard the stories of how Jim Wilson strategically moved here and the odd story of how Pastor Doug came to lead this congregation, which grew and over time became reformed slowly. With this wealth of knowledge and blessing, the church started a publishing house. How many churches have something like Canon Press? And we came to the conviction that we couldn't tolerate our children being taught falsehoods by government schools, so we started Logos and homeschool options. And of course, we want to be faithful in teaching not just young children, but young adults. So we have New St. Andrews, which God has blessed 
with many talented professors over the years. So as I'm imagining things, let's say in 500 years, Moscow perhaps is found mentioned as a footnote in a book on American church history. And I think if I read that footnote, you might find a list of people and events like I just did for the Ephesian church. We care about doctrine at Christ Church. We care about truth. If this sermon is awful and I got it all wrong, I can expect Ty Knight to take me aside tomorrow morning and correct me. And that is a good thing. I just don't want him to do it now. <laughs> As a church, we, told, we hold to a reformed confession of faith and we belong to a denomination that requires every church to do the same. Go on crecchurches.org, whatever the website is, and we have a whole lot of documents of what we believe. We also care about moral purity, confessing our sins together every Lord's Day, confronting one another. Our elders are willing to do the hard work of discipline, laboring with tears to confront destructive sin and restore men, women, and families to the Lord. So we have good shepherds, and when the shepherds have good and faithful sheep here at Christ Church. Likewise, for Ephesus, it seems. But what does Jesus have against them? What should we watch out for? Jesus says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So the Ephesians were lacking in love. Now notice that Jesus does not condemn them for caring about the purity of the church or for having good, sound doctrine. This past week, I came across a post on Facebook that said, what people need is love, not doctrine. And I'm sure some of you have had that said to you. Don't forget about love. Well, that's not what Jesus says in this letter at all. He finds all their works commendable. But he does say that the works must go hand in hand with love. And that's actually an understatement. Not only must love accompany these good works, but without it, Jesus says that their lampstand will be removed. Their church will be no more. The Ephesians did well in their hating. Jesus commends them for hating what he hates. And they were well trained in spiritual warfare, heeding Paul's instruction to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. So these were a hardy group of Christians. They were living in a city full of idolatry, and they were zealous in rejecting all of it. In Acts 19, we read that some of the first converts practiced magic, but when they repented, they burned up their spell books. They had a bonfire. And so many in the city had turned away from worshiping the idols that the silversmiths started their own riot. But, it seems, over the years, they have slowly slipped away from their first love. Now, naturally, there have been different interpretations regarding what this first love is, and that's because we're not given much description. Is it love towards God, towards one another, towards the unbelieving world? Perhaps it involves all three on some level, as I'm sure it did. But given their zeal for truth and purity, it doesn't sound like that they do not love God and Christ. Given their unity in rejecting false teachers and the idolatry in their culture, I somewhat doubt they lack love for one another. No, if anything, it seems the love that could be lacking is that for the outsider, 
for those who did not know the Lord in Ephesus. And Jesus actually prophesied this in Matthew 24, uh, that this would happen before the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And following right after this, Jesus speaks of how the gospel must be and will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. So here we have the church is a lampstand. It shines. It is meant to shine bright into the dark culture that surrounds it. The church is a light to the nations. But if we cease to love our neighbors, if we cease to share the gospel with those who do not know the Lord, we simply cease to be a light. And what good is a lampstand that does not shine? It seems it would be right for Jesus to remove such a lamp from his presence. So it's not enough to hate the deeds of the wicked world around us. It is not enough to hate the sexual immorality that has filled our entertainment. Not enough to hate the perversion that is so-called gay marriage. It's not enough to hate abortion clinics that masquerade as health centers. It is not enough to hate a welfare system that replaces the family, and it's not enough to hate hate our own hypocrisy. It's not enough to hate, according to Jesus. It's not enough to be orthodox in our hatreds, but not in our love. It's not enough because we are commanded to love. We are commanded to love the lost. This gospel is meant for all people, It's meant for your liberal neighbor who hates your pastor's guts. It's meant for the college kid passed out drunk. It's meant for your unbelieving family members. The gospel is for everyone. So we can discuss our doctrine all day and night in coffee shops. We can defend it with zeal on Facebook. We can pride ourselves in the sacrifice we make to give our kids a Christian education. We can publish books and then we can sit down and read them. We can worship on Main Street in the heart of Moscow every Sunday morning and hear true doctrine preached and sung unto the glory of God. But if we're not interested in inviting those on the outside in, we are lacking in love. And we ought to heed the warning here of Jesus. The church is simply uh, not our club. The church is the Lord's. And he has a mission for his people And his mission is this, preach the gospel, love the outsider. And this can look like many things. Yes, it looks like evangelism on the University of Idaho campus. But it also looks like listening closely to your barber or hairdresser, asking them about themselves, and looking for opportunities to share Jesus with them. It looks like inviting your neighbors to your parish group. It looks like not hiding your faith at work because... You know, that could get complicated, you might offend. It can look like many things, but ultimately it looks like love. And it looks like Jesus. So, if this is you, if you have left your first love, Jesus says, remember. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember the works that you used to do. From the time the church in Ephesus was planted to the time Jesus wrote this letter to them, Nearly a generation had passed, and perhaps the younger believers lacked the zeal of their parents for the loss. They were good at memorizing the catechisms. They dressed nicely for church, 
and they were doing the good Christian thing. We're in, the much, we're in much the same place at Christ Church. So as a collective body, we must remember not only our own first works, but the work that those before us have done. We remember their labor. We remember their love. And then we repent. We turn around and do the work Jesus has called us to. We love the people of Moscow. Jesus says that if the church repents, he will not snuff out their light. He says that they endure and overcome, he will reward them with a feast. He will give them the tree of life and the midst of the paradise of God to eat. And as uh, Aaron was saying in his exhortation, we get the tree that was guarded, the tree we were kicked away from. Jesus says endure, he says conquer, and he says to do it with love. And if you do that, you will join me. You will be in my midst. You will now be in paradise. And in a few minutes, we will get a taste of this heavenly feast as we celebrate communion together. Remember, repent, do the first works, return to your first love, and know this. We can have confidence that we will overcome because it is Jesus who holds the angels in his hand that right starried hand. It is Jesus who walks in our midst. It is Jesus who trims our lampstand. He maintains our light. And he does this so that we may continue to shine and shine brightly in all of Moscow. Amen. Our great Father and our God, we know that you are the God of every good and every perfect gift that comes down from you. Father, we are a people who have received so abundantly from you and of this abundance we give back a small portion in our tithes and our offerings lord we pray that you would receive them now as we give them in the name of christ and amen the apostle paul says in philippians 2 it's a well-known passage work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So the question is, how do you know that God is working in you? Sometimes it doesn't feel like God is at work. Sometimes you feel like a lifeless, stagnant pond growing moss and mold. Sometimes it feels like you are making little progress or no progress with your sins, your kids, with your parents, with your boss. It reminds of that Winnie the Pooh book where... Piglet and Pooh are just wandering around in the snow, going around and around in circles, not getting anywhere. Do you feel like that sometimes? God knows you feel like that, and so he gave you this meal. This meal is not from me. This meal is from Jesus. And at this meal, God, Jesus promises to give his life to you. He promises to feed you with his everlasting, unbreakable, imperishable life. In other words, this meal is a standing contradiction to the feeling that you aren't getting anywhere. Yes, you were at this table a week ago. You were fed with the body and blood of our Lord a week ago. But for that very reason, it's impossible that you are still the same. You are working out your salvation, and you must do it. No one else in this room can do it for you. 
but you are not alone. God is working in you with his good pleasure. And this bread and this wine is his promise to you, an oath to you, both that he is at work, and because you trust in him, he is well pleased with you. So don't say that you are, you are not making any progress. Jesus is feeding you now. So come and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal. For here we have the strength, we have the promise that you are at work in us. Even as we eat and drink, we pray that we would do so by faith with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray this in his name and amen. So as uh, Sean was uh, preaching, uh, a story came into my mind of uh, Jesus, I think it's Luke chapter 7, uh, that uh, Jesus is having a dinner at a Pharisee's home. It's, I'm sure it's a respectable environment. They might even be talking about right doctrine. And then in verse, a woman, and she is described as a sinner. She falls at the feet of Jesus and is tearful, crying, uh, uh, wipes his feet with her hair, anoints it with oil, and it's just like, whoa, what is happening here? And Jesus turns and looks at uh, the disciples and says, uh, this woman uh, loves much. Why? Because she knows how much she has been forgiven. Why do we love much, Christians? Because we have been forgiven so much. So, Christ Church downtown, do not forsake your first love. And remember that your sins have been forgiven through Christ. So, receive with believing hearts the benedictions from our great God. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.